Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. Our first episode features a sermon Jonathan recently preached at Willow Creek Community in South Barrington, Illinois, on the wilderness as a place of divine allurement. We hope it will help you navigate some of your own in-between spaces. Then we hope you'll join us for Side B, where Jonathan will answer your own questions about the wilderness. Enjoy. Thank you so much, my friend. It is so good to be here, and I am honored. I've been around Willow Creek a number of times, but never done a midweek, so thanks for being so gracious. Um, I do live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Some of you have driven through Oklahoma. That's what Oklahoma is there for, is to be driven through, but it, no, it's a great place. Um, I am... I have felt very heavy today, uh, already been acknowledged, but I am from Charlotte, North Carolina, where Reverend Billy Graham is from, and feel like just the, the shadow of his life is so long over my life. So I'm thinking about his life and legacy tonight, um, thinking in particular about a phrase my friend and seminary professor, my Old Testament professor, Dr. Ricky Moore, once said, when saints go up, mantles come down. And I think it's especially appropriate whenever a saint departs that we reflect very intentionally on what of his mantle in that wonderful Old Testament imagery is passed on to us. So that's certainly heavy on my heart tonight. But it's, uh, it, it's really, really good to be with you. I'm glad to be talking about leaving Egypt, but it's, uh, it's kind of a bittersweet thing because to leave Egypt in terms of the biblical narrative always means that you're actually going the route of the wilderness. And wilderness, my friends, may be the one and only thing in my entire life that I am experientially qualified to talk about. I know the wilderness. I do know a little bit about the wilderness. Um, I joke that I come from sweat and sawdust. Talking about being from Charlotte, I always kind of refer as a hillbilly Pentecostal, kind of grew up in these rural sort of roots. And, um, you know, I love my tradition. I love where I come from. But I know, like, especially in those days, part of the beauty of that tradition is that you had these kind of Sinai mountaintop experiences with God. And I craved those. I wanted to be on the mountain with God. I wanted to shine like Moses with God's glory. And the trick was, whenever I've had those experiences with God's glory, whenever I felt like there's been some kind of tangible, palpable revelation of God's grace, inevitably my assumption is, well, this is awesome, and it's going to be like this forever. In fact, um, I, we, I, we would kind of talk about this almost, it would sound like a video game, like getting to the next level. Does anybody at Willow Creek know about getting to the next level? New anointing? New levels? New devils? No? Didn't think so. But the idea was like there'd be this place of arrival where the, my encounter with God would be so rich and so profound. And once I get to that place, baby, I'm never coming down. And I look back over the course of my life now, spiritually and honestly in other areas too. I mean, like uh, I, I, at every point in my life, there has been a, a there just around the corner that I thought if I could just get to that place. And I remember that when that was when I was going to turn 16 and get a license for the first time or 18 and graduate from high school or when I get married or when I get that, always just around the corner, there is this there. 
I don't want to sound cynical to you guys tonight, but here's my honest feeling about it at this point. Y'all, there is no there. (laughs) There is no there. I don't know why I'm yelling right now, but I want to do it again. There is no there. It does not exist. Oh, Jesus, please. I wish it did. I wish there was a there. The fact of the matter, most of the journey is wilderness. Most of the space is in between space. Most of the space that we move through is liminal space. Most of it is. And part of the reason for this is because our God is the God of the Exodus. He's a God who's always on the move. So I don't know what they sold you when you first came to Jesus, because a lot of people told me it was going to be like just Oh, just roses and it's going to be so peaceful and wonderful, whatever. Actually, a life of following Jesus is a life of constant chaos, nonstop disruption. Thank you that like three people, y'all know I'm telling the truth. That row knows I'm telling the truth right there. That, that row gets it, y'all. I told you I'm a hillbilly Pentecostal. I need some encouragement as I go. It's, 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 it's always going to be something. It's always going to be something because, and I think there's a reason for this. It is actually in that wilderness journey. It's the in-between space that transforms us. It's the the in-between space that prepares us to inhabit the land that we're called to inhabit. And maybe there's a sense in which that's not fully realized, I don't think, until that day comes. We've been praying for for 2,000 years when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But in in that space in-between, we're being formed we're being fitted. We're on that long, difficult wilderness road. And it's not, it's not sexy, but it's, it's true. And I know for some of you right now in particular, are, identify more than others. We all know something of the wilderness, but there's something about that kind of in-between space. When you're not quite where it is that you came from, like you've left somewhere, but you're not in that new place yet. And in the midst of that kind of wilderness, you can't find yourself on the map. You don't know exactly where God is. You don't know exactly where you are. (laughs) You can feel God forsaken. Wilderness throughout scripture um, has all kind of connotations and meaning. I think in some of the stories you'll get into in the next few weeks, even uh, through the book of Numbers in particular, we know that for the Israelites, when they left Egypt, And when there was a certain kind of disobedience, that's what immediately prompts them going into the wilderness. And I do think there is something about the wilderness that purges us. I do think there is something about the wilderness where we have to face the devil. We have to face our true selves, which by the way, that's actually the harder part is facing your true self. Have to look in the mirror, have to own some things we don't want to own. The wilderness has a way of stripping us down to our most primal selves. It's terrible in that way. As there's, again, so much upheaval that's happening. And yet, yet, and this is what I just felt on my heart was important kind of for the framework of this series, just maybe just, just as, as you're leaping into these things, kind of just at the jumping off point, is to get a glimpse that while this in-between space, yes, it, there are lessons to be learned. And yes, there are things that we don't get right. But in the whole trajectory of Scripture, Wilderness, that place in between Egypt and promised land, is not an altogether bad place. And what it's certainly not is simply punishment. 
One of the reasons that we're reflecting on all of this during Lent, as Christians have always done, really since the earliest times of the church, we reflect on this particular road, this journey, during Lent. And part of the reason for that is that it commemorates the season when Christ himself went into the wilderness. Jesus didn't go into the wilderness because he made a mistake. Jesus goes in the wilderness, Luke 4 makes this very clear, because it's the Spirit of God that drove Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit compelled Jesus. Even Christ himself has to go through this long, lonely, dark, in-between space. Christ is well acquainted with the liminal space. Christ is well acquainted with the in-between space. Christ is well acquainted with that moment that some of us are in when we're not quite here, we're not quite there, and we don't know really where it's going, but, but we know somehow there's a, there's a kind of purpose in this wilderness. It's not always immediately clear. In fact, I don't know if it's ever, but part of the nature of the wilderness is that it's ambiguous time. So clarity is not necessarily the name of the game. I don't know if you can feel this or not, but I'm, I'm, once again, I'm talking from deep experience of the wilderness But here's the the thing about the wilderness that's so bizarre and profound and, I don't know, that so compels me is that while it is a place that's lonely and while it's a place that's cold, part of what we do during Lent, you know, many of us have decided to give something up during this season just for some small measure of trying to identify with that wilderness journey, which isn't exactly a one-to-one thing. Like, I'm giving up chocolate for 40 days, just like Jesus, not eating or drinking for 40 days and facing the devil, mano and mano, in the wilderness. Basically the same thing, because I'm giving up coffee or whatever, but just some, some way to kind of intentionally place us in that space. I do want to look at a particular text, though, in case you were wondering if I was ever going to actually get to the Bible. I do occasionally use the Bible. Um, But it's a text that feels like it's coming in a little bit sideways because it's not one of the wilderness narrative stories like what we get in Numbers. It's from the book of Hosea, which is a provocative book, an evocative book, a difficult book in some ways. Uh, The prophet Hosea is a man that God calls, and as it so often was with the prophets of God, his very life is called to embody his message. So he's not only given a word to proclaim, that word consumes him. That word owns him. That word turns him inside out. That, that, that word is going to swallow him whole. Hosea's entire life turns into a kind of allegory. When God, who is experiencing the unique agony the unique heartbreak of betrayal, his wife, his betrothed, his love, his chosen people had now been worshiping idols. And so God says to Hosea, I'm going to give you a glimpse as to what it's like to be me. I'm going to let you experience firsthand just a a sliver of what's in my own heart. And God calls Hosea to marry a woman who goes into a life of prostitution, who goes to a life in the way that the message translates bluntly, whoredom, goes into a life of whoredom so that Hosea now is going to know what it feels like to, to love someone 
who then rejects him, who abandons him for someone else. He, he, is, he, is, he is pulled in. He is sucked into the very experience of God himself. What a terrifying thing. No wonder that so many of the prophets go kind of crazy because they, they have such an experiential understanding of, of the heart of God. And when we read the prophets in particular, and I think this is part of the reason why we avoid the prophets in some cases, the emotion of those texts is so intense. The pathos of God himself, the agony of God, the heartbreak of God, the rage of God, the sweetness of God, all bound up here together. And the text I want to go to tonight, which by the way, feels like kind of a kamikaze move when I've never done, been with y'all on a Wednesday night. This is diving in right into the deep end, but it's Hosea too. And it is one of those texts that's especially intense, but I think if you'll stay with me, there's some things here that are especially beautiful as well. Let's go to that Hosea chapter two. Begin with verse one, say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one, the Lord says, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who will give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, the Lord says, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal, which they used to make false idols. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. Some of you might want to take any one of these verses and just like put them on your refrigerator this week, memorize them, make it your new life verse. When someone asks, what's your life verse? Give them a verse like that. It's always encouraging to folks. Or this one's, how about this? This is intense. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were pay pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. There's a violence to these words that is troubling. But if we understand this, and I think we're supposed to, in a poetic way, and we understand that what we're getting here, as crazy as this might sound for some of you, We're getting something of the very vulnerability of God himself. This is God's heart exposed. We see the agony of God. 
we, we see something of that unique rage, that unique pain of betrayal. And in this text, there's a, the energy of it is almost flailing. I'm going to get her. I'm going to wall her in. I'm going to make her pay. I'm going to make her feel something of what she's made me feel. That rage in the text is palpable. And it's painful to read something of the hurt of God himself. Just a footnote, by the way. You can't love anybody unless you give them permission to hurt you. That's what love is, is to be vulnerable. Love is to allow yourself to be changed by another person. Love is to allow yourself to be affected by another person. Even for God, it works like this. For what it means for God to love us is for God's own heart to be vulnerable, laid bare, to be exposed. And what we get through these words is an awful lot of rage and hurt. And yet, if we can go back to that text, within the very next breath, now watch this transition. All this talk about punishment, all this talk about exposure, and out of nowhere we get this, verse 14, the Lord says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. And will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth. As in the days when she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. I love this part so much. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In the midst of all this rage and heartbreak, all of a sudden, the prophet, the poet Hosea, burst forth with the deepest part of the heart of God. This is the love that underwrites all that rage that goes much deeper. This is who God really is. This is what God really wants. This is what God has wanted all along. After it seems like these first few Verses are just this venting of divine rage. God says to Israel, I'm going to take you into the wilderness where I will court you. I'm going to take you into the wilderness where I will allure you. In fact, I think I want to go ahead and do this now. Can we go to the message? Eugene Peterson translates this in the most elegant way. And if you study this text in Hebrew, I promise you this bears up. I mean, it just gets right to the... It just just gets to the heart of this in such a beautiful way. Verse 14, Peterson translates, and now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. I'm taking her back out of the wilderness where we had our first date, and I will court her. I'll give her bouquets of roses. I'll turn Heartbreak Valley into acres of hope. I'll stop there for right now. Friends, this this is really what I want to tell you tonight, is one simple thing. 
that for as much as there's something about the wilderness that purifies us for the promised land, one of the themes of this series, the way that after we leave Egypt, that now we need the wilderness for God to get Egypt out of us. That's so true. The wilderness purifies. The wilderness will transfigure. But please don't miss this. Part of the significance of the wilderness, part of the reason why the wilderness is so central to the story of Christ himself, is that the wilderness is the place where God courts us. The wilderness is the place where we get exposed enough, where we get vulnerable enough, where we get low enough. I wish that this were not true, but I promise you this has always been true. The moments in my life, knowing that God is always near and present, but where I've been most conscious of the presence of God have always been in the moments when I've been in the most pain. When I've been the most wounded, when I've been the most exposed, there's something about pain, there's something about suffering, there's something about loss, about failure that breaks us open. The pretenses are gone now. There's nowhere for us to run. There's nowhere for us to hide. There are no illusions that we can cling on to. I don't want to get too real far into this right now because we don't know each other well and I don't want to scare you all off. But part of what's uniquely disturbing and challenging about the season that I think we're in right now in this country is that we're in a place where all the things that have been buried under the surface for so long are above ground now. It's not new. There wasn't exactly a flip that was, or a switch that was flipped, but all these things have been in the darkness for a long time. They're being exposed. And we're having to contend with our true selves. We're having to contend with the real us. All of these divisions, racism, white supremacy, which by the way is a principality that needs to be named and rebuked and called out in the name of Jesus Christ. All these things that have such, that has such a grip on us are being exposed. Those things need to be exposed. We need to be exposed because here's the thing the, I love it when this happens. This has never hit me before in this moment when I was reading the text and it says with such a hint of menace and terror, I will expose her like the day she was born. And clearly from out of the lips of the prophet, there is a kind of anger in this. But see, here's the thing. Once you come to get to know the Lord well enough, here's what you'll find out. God never exposes anything for the sake of anybody's embarrassment. The only reason that God ever exposes anybody is for the sake of healing. It's only when we're walking in the light in the language of 1 John. It's only when all things are in the light that healing is possible, that restoration is possible, that reconciliation is possible. So what happens in the, in the wilderness is that we get worn down enough by the elements to where finally we are just exposed. The real contents of our soul are exposed. The fears that we don't want to name are exposed. The things that we don't want to talk about are now all the way out here in the light. And at first that feels like punishment. At first that feels like hate. At first, that feels like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why do you keep drudging up the same issues over and over again? Why is it that I feel like I have to revisit the same 
places over and over again. Why is it that I always have to deal with the same struggles? Why did this, why is this familiar hurt coming up now? But that's the thing about God's purpose in the wilderness is that things are being stirred up. Things are being revealed. Things are being exposed because God longs to embrace and to cover and to heal. Is anybody hear what I'm saying? Is this making any, any sense at all? Uh, now I feel bad. Like, please clap everyone. If that was not the spirit in which that was intended. I just hope somebody's feeling this. Because I just think there are some of you who really think that you're in the wilderness right now and it's about punishment. And it's just not. The wilderness is not always punishment. The prophets seek the wilderness. Jesus seeks the wilderness. Watch this. Not so that he'll be at his weakest for that climactic moment of temptation. Oh no. Our body is weak when we're in the wilderness. Friends, I'm dealing with some things right now that are buffeting my soul. I'm telling you, I feel as, I, I think I couldn't feel any more fragile or vulnerable. That's, that's the, but that's the great thing about the wilderness. You get through one wilderness and you're like, oh, there's more wilderness. <laughs> it can feel deeper and darker. I, I, I feel it. I feel, the, I feel the frailty. I feel my own fragility in the wilderness. But friends, for as much as that might wear you, us down in some ways in body and mind and all that I'm telling you, it's in the wilderness when your soul is most alive. It's in the wilderness that your soul becomes strong. It's in the wilderness where you find out who you really are and what you're made of. And as this text says so beautifully, it's actually the wilderness where God calls us by our true name. It's in the wilderness that we come to know who God really is. All knowledge of God is theoretical until you get to the wilderness. Someone should say amen to that. All knowledge of God, it is, it's theory. It is academic until you get in the wilderness. And that first love, excitement of following Jesus is an awesome thing. But it is not until you've been through some things and you've wondered if God has left you out here to die. That's when this, the stuff gets real. <laughs> When you think God might have abandoned, God, have you forsaken me? God, are you trying to kill me? But that's something that's so ironic. God doesn't draw us into the wilderness so he can kill us. He doesn't bring us out here to die. God brings us into the wilderness because he wants us to be completely free. And this is the place where that happens. Friends, God sends all his favorite people into the wilderness. God sends all his favorite sons and daughters into obscurity. Do you hear what I'm saying right now? His favorites. This is where God's favorites go. And sometimes I really believe this. The deeper and the darker and the more painful the wilderness it might be. Maybe it's not that God's punishing you. Maybe God uniquely trusts you. Maybe there's a faith that God wants to work in your soul that's so rich and yet so jagged and authentic, <laughs> maybe, you're, maybe you're actually built to take that. Maybe there's something about being in the wilderness that not only breaks you open to God, but it breaks you open to the people around you, that makes us more open to people's pain, that makes us more, makes us more sensitive, makes us more vulnerable. I, I just can't get away from that point for just a second. 
God sends all his favorite sons and daughters in the wilderness. Stop thinking it's about punishment. Stop thinking that God just wants to teach you a lesson. And I want to give you the permission, even if this is a little hard to do in the moment that you're in, because I'll be honest with you, sometimes when you're in the middle of the wilderness, I don't know, man, theology books have not always done me a great deal of good when I'm in the deep dark, because I don't don't want, I don't want articulate language. I mean, the experience, I, I can, I can feel so exposed and so raw and so hungry and so thirsty and just when, when you're bone, when you're cold to your bones and, and you feel alone and you feel abandoned, the theoretical ideas about God, they just don't, they don't, they don't keep you warm in those moments. I, I understand that. I know that. And yet I want to give you a sense of permission here that instead of thinking, which is what I always do when I'm in the wilderness, how do I get out of here? Isn't that a reasonable question to ask in the wilderness? Number one question in the wilderness I have is how long How long? When do we get there? When do we get there? How long is this going to last? And then I start looking for an escape route. I might even, because I am a hillbilly Pentecostal, if I'm really feeling my roots, I might start rebuking the devil. Devil put me in this wilderness. I rebuke you, devil. I'm not called to be in the wilderness. I'm going to claim the promises of God. Works really awesome when the spirit drives you into the wilderness And you think it's the devil and you start like trying to do some kind of spiritual karate. (laughs) How do I get out of here? What do I do to get out? What if instead of trying to get out of the wilderness? And what if instead of asking the question, how long? And what if instead of always looking around the corner? What would it look like in your soul to ask the question right here, right now, tonight? Where is God in this wilderness? Could there be a, to use Peterson's language from the message here, could there be a bouquet of flowers? Could there be a hot meal that God has provided at a really unexpected table for two in the middle of nowhere? Could it be that God has drawn me out here not to kill me, but to romance me? Could it be that I'm so addicted to my technology and to all the noise and all the voices? Could it be that my life is so cluttered and so insane that the only possible shot left of me retaining a sliver of sanity and being healthy and whole is for God to draw me into this place where, yes, I know what it is to be cold again, and yes, I know what it is to be hungry again, and yes, I know what it is to hurt again. But maybe this is also the same place where I can come awake to the presence of God again. Maybe this is also the place where I can get awake to the really real again. Maybe this is also the place where I found out what matters. Maybe this is also the place where I learned my own true name and the name of the one who calls me beloved. Maybe that's what God is up to in this place. I'm trying really hard not to skip ahead to Jesus in the wilderness because that's a whole other sermon for another time and I promise I'm winding this thing down. But it dawned on me just a few weeks ago, really, for all that I'd 
meditated on the wilderness journey of Jesus and the temptations and the fasting and all those kind of things, that at the very end of that text, it says that God sent angels to minister to Jesus. And I want to tell you something, friends. There are some angels. There, 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 is, some, there is a certain kind of peace. There's a certain kind of love and a quality of love that you don't get to anywhere else except the wilderness. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm not trying to romanticize it. It's God awful, people. It's awful. <laughs> I'm not trying. Sometimes I talk like Yoda and I don't mean to. I'm not trying to romanticize it, but what I'm telling you is that there's something romantic about it for your soul <laughs> because this is where you come to know the lover of your soul. There is a certain kind of ministry. There's a certain kind of, there is a, a way of knowing God that just could not happen through any other path except for this one. So I want tonight as we close, I want to encourage you for all the things about the wilderness that make you afraid. The metaphorical scorpions in the desert, for all the things about the, for all the, thing about the elements that frighten you, I want you to have a sense of permission and freedom that if the spirit is the one who leads you into the wilderness, there can be good here. There can be life here. There can be beauty here. You can, come, you can be seen and known in the wilderness like you never have in all of your life. You can come to see and know God in a way like you ne- have never known in all of your life. There, there's a unique purpose that God has for you in the wilderness. I'm telling you, sons and daughters, it is not to punish you. It is to bring you to life. The trick is the way that God brings us to life can feel an awful lot like dying. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? It is a simulation of death to go into the belly of the beast. But what if once again, what if that place, that agonizing place, is it for the enemies of God? <laughs> Whoever that is could have fun with that. You know, the only reason Christians have to ever identify their enemies, don't you, is to figure out who to bless. God blesses his enemies. <laughs> But another sermon for another time. The friends of God, the people that God loves, those are the ones that he draws into the wilderness space. Stand with me if you would, or I'll do this. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of Side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.